friends, and welcome back to Bitching About the Decameron. We're about to finish the fifth day, which makes this a very special episode indeed. But for now, let's get on with the story. When the Queen's tale had reached its conclusion, they all praised God for having given Federigo so fitting a reward, and then Dionio, who was not in the habit of waiting to be asked, began straightway as follows. Whether it is an accidental failing stemming from our debased morals, or simply an innate attribute of men and women, I am unable to say. But the fact remains that we are more inclined to laugh at scandalous behaviour than virtuous deeds, especially when we ourselves are not directly involved. And since, as on previous occasions, the task I am about to perform has no other object than to dispel your melancholy, enamoured ladies, and provide you with laughter and merriment, I should tell you the ensuing tale, for it may well afford enjoyment even though its subject matter is not altogether seemly. As you listen, do as you would when you enter a garden, and stretch forth your tender hands to pluck the roses, leaving the thorns where they are. This you will succeed in doing if you leave the knavish husband to his ill deserts and his iniquities, whilst you laugh gaily at the amorous intrigues of his wife, pausing where occasion warrants to commiserate with the woes of her lover. Not so very long ago there lived in Perugia a rich man called Pietro de Vinciolo, who, perhaps to pull the wool over the eyes of his fellow citizens, or to improve the low opinion they had of him, rather than because of any real wish to marry, he took to himself a wife. But the unfortunate part about it, considering his own proclivities, was that he chose to marry a buxom young woman with red hair and a passionate nature, who would cheerfully have taken on a pair of husbands, let alone one, and now found herself wedded to a man whose heart was anywhere but in the right place. So, in case you aren't picking up on it, these are, this is some euphemisms for this dude is gay. Or at least, this dude is the 14th century equivalent of the modern term gay, because the whole thing is complex. But let's just say, the husband is attracted to men. That much seems... From my brief looking ahead, I can already guarantee that that's what he is alluding to here. And on that note, I will warn you that this story will include some uh, reflections of societal homophobia, but that while the husband is disapproved of, he is not he is not in any way persecuted. Let's put it that way. Having in due course discovered how matters stood, his wife, seeing that she was a fair and lusty wench, blooming with health and vitality, was greatly upset about it, and every so often she gave him a piece of her mind, calling him the foulest names imaginable. She was miserable practically the whole time, but one day, realising that if she went on like this her days might well be ended before her husband's ways were mended, she said to herself, "'Since this miserable sinner deserts me to go clogging through the dry, I'll get someone else to come aboard for the wet.' Dear God! I married the wretch and brought him a good big dowry because I knew he was a man and thought he was fond of the kind of thing that other men like, as is right and proper that they should. If I hadn't thought he was a man, I should never have married him. And if he found women so repugnant, why did he marry me in the first place, knowing me to be a woman? I'm not going to stand for it any longer. I have no desire to turn my back on the world, nor have I ever wanted to. Otherwise, I'd have gone into a nunnery. But if I have to rely on this fellow for my fun and games, the chances are that I'll go on waiting until I'm an old woman. And what good will it do me then, my old age, to look back and complain about the way I wasted my youth, which this husband of mine teaches me all too well how to enjoy? 
He has shown me how to lead a pleasurable life, but whereas in his case the pleasure can only be condemned, in my own it will commend itself to all, for I shall simply be breaking the laws of marriage, whereas he is breaking those of nature as well. These, then, were the wife's ideas, to which she doubtless gave further thought on other occasions, and in order to put them into effect she made the acquaintance of an old board, who to all outward appearances was as innocent as St. Ferdiana feeding the serpents, for she made a point of attending all the religious services clutching her rosary, and never stopped talking about the lives of the fathers of the church and the wounds of St. Francis, so that nearly everyone regarded her as a saint. Choosing the right moment, the wife took her fully into her confidence, whereupon the old woman said, "'The Lord above my daughter, who is omniscient, knows that you are very well advised, if only because you should never waste a moment of your youth, and the same goes for all other women. To anyone who's had experience of such matters, there's no sorrow to compare with that of having wasted your opportunities. After all, what the devil have we women fit for in our old age except to sit round the fire and stare at the ashes? No woman can know this better than I, or prove it to you more convincingly.' Now that I am old, my heart bleeds when I look back and consider the opportunities I allowed to go to waste. Mind you, I didn't waste all of them. I wouldn't want you to think that I was a half-wit. But all the same, I didn't do as much as I should have done. And God knows what agony it is to see myself reduced now to this sorry state, and realise that if I wanted to light a fire, I couldn't find anyone to lend me a poker. Oh, God, Dionio, you're not subtle. With men it is different. They are born with a thousand other talents apart from this, and older men do a far better job than younger ones as a rule. But women exist for no other purpose than to do this and to bear children, which is why they are cherished and admired. If you doubt my words, there's one thing that ought to convince you, and that is that a woman's always ready for a man, but not vice versa. What's more, one woman could exhaust many men, whereas many men can't exhaust one woman. And since this is the purpose for which we are born, I repeat that you are very well advised to pay your husband in his own coin, so that when you're an old woman your heart will have no cause for complaint against your flesh. You must help yourself to whatever you can grab in this world, especially if you're a woman. It's far more important for women than for men to make the most of their opportunities, because when we're old, as you can see for yourself, neither our husbands nor any other man can bear the sight of us, and they bundle us off into the kitchen to tell stories to the cat and count the pots and pans. And what's worse, they make up rhymes about us, such as, when she's twenty, give her plenty, when she's a gamma, give her the hammer, and a lot of other sayings in the same strain. But I won't detain you any longer with my chit-chat. You've told me what you have in mind, and I can assure you right away that you couldn't have spoken to anyone in the world who was better able to help. There's no man so refined as to deter me from telling him what's required of him, nor is there any so raw and uncouth as to prevent me from softening him up and bending him to my will. So just point out the one you would like and leave the rest to me. But one thing I would ask you to remember, my child, and that is to offer me some token of your esteem, for I'm a poor old woman, and from now on I want you to have a share in my indulgences and all the paternosters I recite, so that God may look with favour on the souls of your departed ones. Having said her piece, she came to an understanding with the young lady that if she should come across a certain young man who frequently passed through that part of the city, and of whom she was given a very full description, she would take all necessary steps. The young woman then handed over a joint of salted meat, and they took their leave of one another. Within the space of a few days, the youth designated by the lady was ushered secretly into her apartments by the belle dame, and thereafter, at frequent intervals, several others who had taken the young woman's fancy were similarly introduced to her. Oh boy! <laughs> were similarly introduced to her, and although she was in constant fear of being discovered by her husband, she made the fullest possible use of her opportunities. 
One evening, however, her husband having been invited to supper by a friend of his called Ercolano, the young woman commissioned the beldame to fetch her one of the prettiest and most agreeable youths in Perugia, and her instructions were duly carried out. But no sooner were she and the youth seated at the supper table than her husband Pietro started clamouring at the door to be let in. The woman was convinced on hearing this that her final hour had come, but all the same she wanted to conceal the youth if possible, and not having the presence of mind to hide him in some other part of the house, she persuaded him to crawl beneath a chicken coop in the lean-to adjoining the room where they were dining, and threw a large sack over the top of it, which she had emptied of its contents earlier in the day. This done, she quickly let in her husband, to whom she said as he entered the house, "'You soon gobbled down that supper of yours?' "'We never ate a crumb of it,' replied Pietro. "'And why was that?' said his wife. "'I'll tell you why it was,' said Pietro. No sooner had Ercolano, his wife, and myself taken our places at table than we heard someone sneezing close beside where we were sitting. We took no notice the first time it happened, or the second, but when the sneezing was repeated for the third, fourth, and fifth times, and a good many more besides, we were all struck dumb with astonishment. Ercolano was in a bad mood anyway because his wife had kept us waiting for ages before opening the door to let us in, and he rounded on her almost choking with fury, saying, "'What's the meaning of this? Who's doing all that sneezing?' He then got up from the table and walked over to the stairs, beneath which there was an alcove boarded in with timber, such as people very often use for storing away bits and pieces when they're tidying up the house. As this was the place from which Ercolano thought the sneezes were coming, he opened the little door in the wainscoting, whereupon the whole room was suddenly filled with the most appalling smell of sulphur. But a little while before, when we caught a whiff of sulphur and complained about it, Ercolano's wife said, "'It's because I was using sulphur earlier in the day to bleach my veils.' I sprinkled it into a large bowl so that they would absorb the fumes, then placed it in the cupboard under the stairs, and it's still giving off a faint smell. After opening the little door and waiting for the fumes to die down a little, Ercolano peered inside and caught sight of the fellow who'd been doing all the sneezing, and was still sneezing his head off because of the sulphur. They're lucky he didn't die. But if he'd stayed there much longer... Never mind. <laughs> but if he'd stayed there much longer, he would never have sneezed again, nor would he have done anything else for that matter. When he saw the man sitting there in the cupboard, Ercolano turned to his wife and shouted, Now I see, woman, why you kept us waiting so long at the door just now without letting us in, but I'll make you pay for it if it's the last thing I do. On hearing this, since it was perfectly obvious what she had been doing, his wife got up from the table without a word of explanation and took to her heels. What became of her I have no idea. Not having noticed that his wife had fled, Ercolano called repeatedly on the man who was sneezing to come out, but the fellow was already on his last legs and couldn't be persuaded to budge. So Ercolano grabbed him by one of his feet, dragged him out, and ran for a knife in order to kill him, at which point, since I was afraid we would all be arrested, myself included, I leapt to my feet and saved him from being killed or coming to any harm. As I was defending him from Ercolano, my shouts brought several of the neighbours running to the scene, and they picked up the youth, who was no longer conscious, and carried him out of the house, but I've no idea where they took him. All this commotion put paid to our supper, so that, as I said, not only did I not gobble it down, but I never ate a crumb of it. On hearing this tale, his wife perceived that other women, even though their plans occasionally miscarried, were no less shrewd than herself, and she was strongly tempted to speak up in defence of Ercolano's wife. But thinking that by censuring another's misconduct she could cover up her own more successfully, she said, "'What a nice way to behave! What a fine, God-fearing specimen of womanhood! What a loyal and respectable spouse! Why, she had such an air of saintliness that she looked as if butter wouldn't melt in her mouth! But the worst part about it is that anyone as old as she is should be setting the young so fine an example!' A curse upon the hour she was born. 
May the devil take the wicked and deceitful hussy for allowing herself to become the general butt and laughingstock of all the women of this city. Not only has she thrown away her own good name, broken her marriage vows, and forfeited the respect of society, but she's had the audacity, after all he has done for her, to involve an excellent husband and venerable citizen in her disgrace, and all for the sake of some other man. So help me God, women of her kind should be shown no mercy. They ought to be done away with. They ought to be burnt alive and reduced to ashes. But at this point, recalling that her lover was concealed beneath the chicken coop in the very next room, she started coaxing Pietro to go to bed, saying it was getting late. Whereupon Pietro, who had a greater urge to eat than to sleep, asked her whether there was any supper left over. Supper? she replied. What would I be doing cooking supper when you're not at home to eat it? Do you take me for a wife of Ercolano? Be off with you to bed and give your stomach a rest just for this once. Now, earlier that same evening, some of the labourers from Pietro's farm in the country had turned up at the house with a load of provisions, and had tethered their asses in a small stable adjoining the lean-to without bothering to water them. Being frantic with thirst, one of the asses, having broken its tether, had strayed from the stable and was roaming freely about the premises, sniffing in every nook and cranny to see if it could find water. And in the course of its wanderings, it came and stood immediately beside the coop under which the young man was hidden. Since the young man was having to crouch on all fours, one of his hands was sticking out slightly from underneath the coop, and as luck would have it, or rather, as his great misfortune, the ass brought one of its hooves to rest on his fingers, causing him so much pain that he started to shriek at the top of his voice. Pietro, hearing this, was filled with astonishment, and realising that the noise was coming from somewhere inside the house, he rushed from the room to investigate. The youth was still howling, for the ass had not yet shifted its hoof from his fingers and was pressing firmly down upon him all the time. "'Who's there?' yelled Pietro as he ran to the coop, lifting it up to reveal the young man who, apart from suffering considerable pain from having his fingers crushed beneath the hoof of the ass, was trembling with fear from head to foot in case Pietro should do him some serious injury. Pietro recognised the young man as one he had long been pursuing for his own wicked ends, and demanded to know what he was doing there. But instead of answering his question, the youth pleaded with him for the love of God not to do him any harm. "'Get up,' said Pietro. "'There's no need to worry. I shan't do you any harm.' Just tell me what you're doing here and how you got in. The young man made a clean breast of the whole thing, and Pietro, who was no less pleased with his discovery than his wife was filled with despair, took him by the hand and led him back into the room, where the woman was waiting for him in a state of indescribable terror. Pietro sat down, looked her squarely in the face, and said, When you were heaping abuse on Ercolano's wife just now, when saying that she ought to be burnt alive and that she was giving women a bad name, why didn't you say the same things about yourself? And if you wanted to keep yourself out of it, what possessed you to say such things about her, when you knew full well that you were tired with the same brush? The only reason you did it, of course, was because all you women are alike. You go out of your way to criticise others' failings so as to cover up your own. Oh, how I wish that a fire would descend from heaven and burn the whole revolting lot of you to ashes. On finding that all she had to contend with, in the first flush of his anger, was a string of verbal abuse, and noting how delighted he seemed to be holding such a good-looking boy by the hand, the wife plucked up her courage and said, It doesn't surprise me in the least that you want a fire to descend from heaven and burn us all to ashes, seeing that you're as fond of women as a dog is fond of a hiding, but by the holy cross of Jesus you'll not have your wish granted. However, now that you've raised the subject, I'd like to know what you're grumbling about. It's all very well for you to compare me to Ercolano's wife, but at least he gives that sanctimonious old trollop whatever she wants and treats her as a wife should be treated, which is more than can be said for you. I grant you that you keep me well supplied with clothes and shoes, but you know very well how I fare for anything else and how long it is since you last slept with me. And I'd rather go barefoot and dressed in rags and have you treat me properly in bed than have all those things to wear and a husband who never comes near me. 
For the plain truth is, Pietro, that I'm no different from other women, and I want the same that they are having. And if you won't let me have it, you can hardly blame me if I go and get it elsewhere. At least I do you the honour not to consort with stable boys and riffraff. Pietro saw that she could go on talking all night, and since he was not unduly interested in his wife, he said, Hold your tongue now, woman, and leave everything to me. Be so good as to see that we're supplied with something to eat. This young man looks as though he's had no more supper this evening than I have. Of course he hasn't had any supper, said his wife. We were no sooner seated at table than you had to come knocking on the door. Run along then, said Pietro, and get us some supper, after which I'll arrange matters so that you won't have any further cause for complaint. On perceiving that her husband was so contented, the wife sprang to her feet and quickly relayed the table. And when the supper she had prepared was brought in, she and the youth and her degenerate husband made a merry meal of it together. How exactly Pietro arranged matters after supper to the mutual satisfaction of all three parties, I no longer remember. But I do know that the young man was found next morning wandering about the piazza, not exactly certain with which of the pair he had spent the greater part of his night, the wife or the husband. So my advice to you, dear ladies, is this, that you should always give back as much as you receive, and if you can't do it at once, bear it in mind till you can, so that what you lose on the swings, you gain on the roundabouts. Dionio's story was thus concluded, and if the ladies' laughter was restrained, this was more out of modesty than because it had failed to amuse them. But now the queen, perceiving that her sovereignty had come to an end, rose to her feet, and transferring the laurel crown from her own head to that of Elissa, she said to her, Madam, it is now for you to command us. Elissa, having accepted the honour, proceeded as before, first of all arranging with the steward about what was to be done during her term of office, and then, to the general satisfaction of the company, she addressed them as follows. Already we have heard many times how various people, with some clever remark or ready retort or some quick piece of thinking, have been able, by striking at the right moment, to draw the teeth of their antagonists, or avert impending dangers. This being so splendid a topic, and one which may also be useful, I desire that with God's help our discussion on the morrow should confine itself to the following. Those who, on being provoked by some verbal pleasantry, have returned like for like, or who, by a prompt retort or shrewd manoeuvre, have avoided danger, discomfiture, or ridicule. This proposal was warmly approved by one and all, and so the Queen, having risen to her feet, dismissed the whole company till supper-time. On seeing that the Queen had risen, the honourable company did likewise. Then all of them turned their attention in the usual way to whatever pleased them most. But when the cicada song was no longer to be heard, everyone was called back and they all sat down to supper. Of this they partook in a gay and festive spirit, and when the meal was over they proceeded to sing and make music. Amelia having begun to dance, Dionea was called upon to sing them a song, and he promptly came out with, Mona Aldruda, lift up your tail, for marvellous tidings I bring. I'm checking the footnote on that one. The footnote offers no further information except to confirm that the song is indeed a bawdy one. Whereupon all the ladies began to laugh, especially the queen, who ordered him to stop, sing them another. My lady, said Dionio, if I had a drum, I'd sing you skirts up, monolapper, or the grass beneath the privet grows, or, if you preferred, the waves of the sea are my torment. But I haven't a drum, so take your pick from among these others. Would you like out you come to wither away, like to the flower that blossoms in May? No, said the queen, sing us something else. In that case, said Dionio, I'll sing you Mona Simona, put wine in your cask, not till October, sir, she said. 
I'll confound you, said the Queen with a laugh. If you're going to sing, choose something nice. We don't want to hear that one. Come, my lady, said Dionir, don't take offence. Which do you like best? I know a thousand of them, at least. Would you like, I never have enough of my little bit of stuff? Or, ah, be gentle, husband dear? Or, I bought myself a cock for a hundred pounds? All the ladies laughed except the Queen, who was beginning to grow impatient with him. No more of your nonsense, Dionio, she said. Sing us something pleasant, or you'll learn what it means to revoke my anger. Dionio, hearing these words, curtailed his idle chatter, and promptly began to sing the following song, which I won't quote it in its entirety, but which begins, Cupid, the beauteous light that shines forth from my mistress' eye, has made me both her slave and thine. When, by his silence, Dionysus showed them that his song was finished, the queen, having warmly commended it, called for many others to be sung. But it was now very late, and the queen, perceiving that the cool of the night had banished the warmth of the day, bade them all go and sleep to their heart's content till the morning. Here ends the fifth day of the Decameron. Well, my friends, we've made it halfway. When I began, I certainly didn't expect that we would make it so far. I wasn't fully confident that I would make more than a few episodes. I was recording them really for something to do. Some of you may or may not recall the jokes that we told back in those far-off optimistic days of March, when we thought this thing would pass quickly. Uh, jokes about all the podcasts that people were going to start up in their free time. And I did see those posts, and I did think, this is a vanity project. It won't really last. For the fact that it has, I must credit Amanda, um, my wonderful producer, and my very dear friend, because without her enthusiasm for the project, without us sharing the episodes every week, and without her uh, her work in tidying up these episodes and making it all seem very professional and neat compared to how things usually start when I record them, I am certain that this podcast would not have made it so far. However, it has, and I can tell you that I hope and plan for it to last another six months and another five days and possibly longer. Along the way, I have sworn at Giovanni a lot. I have sworn at my own stumbles a lot, particularly over names, because I don't read these stories in advance. I, I'm usually uh, attempting a name when I read it for the first time, uh, and it often takes me a few goes, and in fact, last week I ended up giving up on Federigo's last name entirely, with a few curses. I get interrupted by noise from the house, uh, occasionally by my cat, and the wonderful Amanda makes all of this seem very smooth. While not editing out the pauses that indicate my utter disdain for what has happened. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast so far. According to the statistics we've got, the total of all of our episodes have been played approximately 1,100 times and we have a regular audience of perhaps 20 people. 20 people is a nice number, 
It's not a big number, but it's not a small number either. If any of you would like to share with friends, this is probably a good time to do it, it being six months. But I also really just want to express to you my thanks for listening. Perhaps I would have done this project if no one had listened, but I don't think it would have lasted so long. So here's to another six months of the Decameron, and here's to the hope of months ahead of us that may be kinder than the ones behind us. Take care, everybody. Bitching About the Decameron is created by Gwen David and produced by Amanda Martell. Take care, and thanks for listening.